Okay, so tonight we're going to be starting the book of 2 Kings, which is really like, you know, the second half. It's like 1 Kings, it's like halftime. All right, now halftime's over, and we're going into 2 Kings tonight as we go forward with the historical record of the kings of the north, the kings of Israel. As we know, the kingdom of Israel became divided in 931 B.C. when Solomon stepped into eternity. Rehoboam, his son, reigned in the south. Jeroboam, his former uh, manager, reigned in the north. And from that time on, two different kingdoms, about 40 different kings combined over about a 300-year period that unfolded there. And we're reading this history, and during this time in the north, there, there, were never, there was never a good king. They were all evil, the kings in the north. We just finished up with Ahab, step into eternity last week, if you recall. He's one of the worst of all the bad ones. And we're going forward from that record. So Jezebel, his wife, is still alive. She's trouble, and she'll pop up later in this book. And we left off with Jehoshaphat is the king in the south, the king of Judah. So we have a good king in the south, Jehoshaphat. And Ahaziah has replaced his dad, Ahab, in the north. And that's what we got going on right now. So we just come right back out, and we come into 2 Kings tonight with that background. Elijah's still around, and Elisha has been anointed by Elijah to be his successor as well. Chapter 1, verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, that would Ahaziah, he said to him, Why have you come back? So they said, A man came up to meet us, and he said to us, Go return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because it is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And then he said to him, Well, well what kind of man was it, and, and, and who, who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elisha the Tishbite. I just love when God uses prophets against proud kings. And there's something, you know, I'm always for the underdog. And, and when you read these stories, it's like, uh, God's always doing so much more than we think. And no matter how powerful a king might look, he's still working through the prophets and the prophetesses, his servants, his maidservants, and his men servants. You know, he's always doing so much more than we think or know. And in this story, we see as soon as Ahab dies, now Ahab was a powerful king. His dad was even more powerful. We talked about the extra biblical written records of his dad's life and legacy uh, from the writings of Assyrians and the Syrian empires and the, and the Moabites and their records that are archaeological finds. When we left off last week with Ahab dying after being shot by the arrow that pierced his armor, we read, it said, and all the other things they ever did, the cities he built and all the great things he did, are they not written in the, the, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Ahab was a powerful king. And even though he had, he had the supernatural victories through the Lord against Ben-Hadad of Syria in the north, and he was a strong king in his own efforts, and he obviously had subjected Moab, his neighbor, to the right. So 
you know, Israel, Mediterranean Sea, Jordan River, Galilee, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, and then over here is Moab. And as soon as he dies, there's rebellion. Men are always looking to do political power, money. People are always looking to make that move, whatever's in their best interest. And as soon as there's a weakness from one perceived leader, man, they jump on it. So right away, Moab's like, we're going to test Ahaziah. Well, they probably didn't know, but Ahaziah was already doomed because God pronounced judgment on the house of Ahab. So it's actually a pretty good decision on a geopolitical sense for Moab to rebel because Israel in the north, the ten tribes in the north, based out of Samaria, under the leadership of Ahaziah, is impotent. It doesn't have any power. He's cursed, and he's brought upon himself. But unless we think God's just judging Ahaziah because of his dad's sins, we realize God's going to judge him for his own sins. This is an amazing statement where he sends Elisha, the Tishpite, the prophet of all prophets in the Old Testament, and he says, like, is it because there's no God in Israel you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Let's think this through. God of the universe, by whom and through whom are all things held together, Jehovah, the Father loves the Son, has committed all things to him, all things were made by Christ and for Christ, and him all things consistent and held together, like the universe, the micro the macro, all of it, the God of Israel, you can serve him and you can be protected, you can have peace and you can be prosperous or on your bed of illness, you're going to go seek the God of Ekron. So do you want to serve, do you want to seek Beelzebub? Baal means Lord. Remember we talked about this. Beelzebub is like Lord of Ekron. So you're going to go like the Lord of Ekron is like a baby God over a little town. It's like a mayor God, Right? And you think, what is wrong with these kings of Israel? You have the Ten Commandments. You have the Law of Moses. You have every reason to call upon the name of the Lord. You can read historically all things he did for Moses and Joshua and the book of Judges and all these things, how he blesses those who obey him and how he brings chasing upon or curses upon those who rebel against them. And we don't have to choose curses when we can choose blessings. But Ahaziah, he chose... In, his, in the pivotal moment of his life, the cruxable, the apex, he could, because God gives us self-determination, he could call out to Jehovah, the God of Israel, God of the burning bush, God of the universe. He could humble himself. But instead, he's going to go inquire of some Philistine priest of, of Baal And he's going to inquire of the God of Ekron. Like, it's just amazing to me, like, how people do this. But are we ever surprised what people believe when they reject Jesus Christ? Are we truly ever surprised when people reject God, what they'll choose to believe? They reject God's order, design and order, his creation, his purposes, his, just the beauty of everything. And they choose to believe they came from a rock that came alive and walked and became a human being after it was a monkey. Like, it's amazing what you'll believe when you reject the truth. It's just amazing. And in your hour of need, how many people, it's amazing how instead of turning to the the God of Israel, the God of the universe, they turn to the God of Ekron. Talk about being small-minded. But that's what happens when you rebel against the Lord. So it's unfortunate for him. And there are so many people like this in human history that God doesn't send a prophet to. But why does he send a prophet to this guy? Because he's the king of Israel leading God's people into covenant. That's why. Too much is given, much is required. And he can't just get off the hook because, well, my dad served Baal and Jehovah, kind of, maybe. My mom definitely served Baal. But, like, you just don't get off the hook. 
it's kind of like, like I've talked about, if you're in the ministry and you're a pastor of any denomination, and there's thousands of them, and you don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you don't believe he's the eternal son of God, you don't believe he's born of the virgin, you don't believe he's the creator of the universe, you don't believe he literally died on the cross for your sins, and he's the only one that can save you from your sins, and you don't believe he rose from the grave physically, because he did, and you don't believe he's in heaven, because he did, and you don't believe he's at the right hand of the Father, because he is, and you don't believe he's coming back, but he is, then why would you be in ministry, right? Right? But you know, there's more pastors in ministry that believe like that who reject those truths than those who embrace them, particularly in this country. Isn't that crazy? And they're very accountable for getting in the pulpit. And this isn't the main part of tonight, but it's hard. For you to say, why would God even care? Azaziah gets a whole chapter. But the guy, the guy's a leader for God's people, and he failed in his leadership. He is a false shepherd. He stumbles the sheep. The sheep are scattered. What did the prophet Micaiah say about Ahab? I saw Israel scattered like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he ended 1 Kings. And it's just, it's just unfortunate this is the way it goes. And these people are in power. These people go to church. They go where they go. They do what they do. They're kings. They have power. They have money. They control this stuff. They can threaten. They can bully. They can intimidate. They can wink. They can shuffle the feet. But in the end, man, when they fall through their little thing in their bed, and God says, you, want it? You, you go inquire on the God of Ekron, and you see how that works out. And God sends the prophet. And it's not, it's not a prophetic word with with a hope but then again this isn't the kind of guy who would who would grasp hope because he's already rejected it and he certainly doesn't bring hope so far that we know about Ahaziah is he made a business deal with Jehoshaphat with the ships to go get gold from Ophir and the fleet was destroyed by the Lord he was the bad investor not his money or his time or his energy his presence was evil and bad company corrupts good morals. So in the business venture, this unequally yoked partnership that ended First Kings, it was him and him alone being accepted by Jehoshaphat, his relative, the king of the south, to be part of this business venture that doomed that fleet. In other words, what he touched in business was cursed when it was yoked with people who are blessed. God can't bring the blessing on the blessed when they're yoked with the cursed. And that's what we learned from Ahaziah. But there's more to this story. Because he's on his deathbed and he's hoping it's not his deathbed. Because, you know, when you live for a temporal, as you get older, you're going from your glory. You're getting farther from your glory. But when you live for the eternal, we're going from glory to glory. See, that's the beauty of all the people over 50 in this church. Or all those senior saints with Odin Fong down the street that used to go to Big Calvary as well. We're going from glory to glory. We're going to our glory. I am one day closer to glory today, November 8th, 2022, and so are you. We're, we're going to glory. I have a vision for goals for the future, and so do you. And ultimately, I'm not in a hurry to be 75 or 80, but I know when I'm 75 or 80, it's a two-minute warning. And I'm headed to our glory. I'm right there. So all my vision is for the glory to come, not the glory that was. But when you're Ahaziah and you're on your deathbed and you're fairly young still, you're, you're, the wages of sin is death. And that death is physical, spiritual, and eternal. He's separated from God. He's got a physical infirmity that's going to kill him. And he's facing doom in eternity because he's rejected the Lord. He'd rather seek the, the, the Lord of Akron 
instead of the God of Israel, who he represents as the king of Israel. We're going to our glory. He's leaving his glory. And it's, it's just not, it's a, it's, a bad, it's a bad story for him. So, but you know, he's still in power. Like, like old kings on their deathbed. He's, he's still got some power. He's like, oh, you know, like, they may not know what year it is. They may not know what day it is. They might be a little fuzzy, but this guy's not that old. So he's just young and powerful, but he's bedridden. That's funny how physical infirmity can humble us so quickly. There's treasures and earthen vessels for us who believe, but it's just, for those who don't believe, you know what the Bible says about us? From the dust we came, the dust will return. That's what it says. So the king sent to him a captain of 50, verse 9, with, a captain of 50 with 50 men. This is the king Ahaziah. He said, you can't just, you can't just tell him what, you just can't come with the word of Elijah and think he's going to get away with it because he's still the political power. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on top of a hill, that is Elijah, and he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down, you know, because he's the king, right? He's the king. So Elijah answers and said to the captain of the 50, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Then he sent to him another captain of 50 with 50 men, his 50 men, and he answered and said to him, man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to him, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 this is an amazing story. So think about Ahaziah's life. This is who he is. In the business partnership, it's cursed. The ship's crashed. There's no gold for anybody. Now, he sends 100 men to their death because he has to tell Elijah to his face what he thinks because he's the king. He's got to have the final say. But these, 50 by, these two groups of 50 men, I'm just thinking... In the, you know, there's a law to be under authority and in authority, that kind of stuff. But then there's a law of common sense. Like, and you know, it's like, I'm just thinking, we know this guy already called down fire, the fire of God on the offering against the prophets of Baal. He slaughtered 400 prophets of Baal. And you're going to go up there with 50 men and say, hey, the king's told you to come down and we've got the power of the king. You know, we've got the law. I'm just thinking it's a bad idea to go after a prophet who calls on fire from heaven and tell me better show up with you when you go to see the, the king. And it happened twice. So I got to thinking, 50 men, maybe 50 marriages with spouses, maybe 100 kids, two kids of family. Well, could they? Listen, these men were following an evil leader and they were, they, the moment they allied themselves with Ahaziah, they put themselves against the Lord. We need to be really careful what philosophies, what worldviews we align ourselves with when they put us against the Lord. And I know most of you know that, but for those who listen to this study or watch this video, you need to know it. We don't want to put ourselves in the camp of Ahaziah against the Lord because that's the camp that's cursed. To obey the Lord is the camp that's blessed. That's the camp we want to be in. And these, these two captains and their hundred men, they led him into battle to, against a prophet sitting on a hill who calls down fire from heaven. And by the way, just because you can call down fire from heaven doesn't mean God's going to call down fire from heaven, right? I mean, Paul had a healing handkerchief, the apostle Paul, and he could heal people with that healing handkerchief. 
But when he had infirmity, he couldn't heal himself. Right? So just because God does do supernatural things through you at various times, doesn't mean he's going to always do supernatural things through you at various times. When I said in Jesus' name to a man had drawn a knife on me, to he drew a knife and he was coming for me. I said in Jesus' name, put that knife away. And the knife disappeared. They never found it. He did, he did get arrested for all these other things, trying to steal my car and all that. But the, I was like, wow. It was the first year of ministry. I was like, why do you see that? I was like, in Jesus' name, and the knife is gone. So I was like, I felt like, you know, like a, a quick draw, you know, ha, in Jesus' name. Well, I tried that one time, another time. I was with Victor Marks. Many of you know Victor Marks. This is when he was doing some youth ministry, and I was doing the drug and alcohol recovery ministry, and there was a, a house. It was a duplex, and these people were cooking crystal meth. It's a different crystal meth story from Vista than the other one I shared last week, but they were cooking crystal meth, and the lady next door was trying to go to church, and it was like demonic, and it was oppressive, and she asked us to come over and cast out the demons and all this stuff, and you know, if you know Victor, he's like, oh, we got to do this. I'm like, let's go. Well, let's go. So there, there, there was these guys doing drugs, and they're, they're all there. And, you know, of course, Victor's a black belt. So if you're going to show up like that, it's good to show up with Victor Marks because he can defend himself. I'm just, like, behind Victor going, like, in Jesus' name, you know. Like, it didn't work. I, I, I was waiting for it. I was like, you know, like, oh, it's coming. Mm, it's coming right now. And they're like, ah, and they're, all, they're like on drugs. And, and I'm like, here it comes. In Jesus' name, it didn't work. It, it's like, you know, like, is it, is it jammed? You know, like, <laughs> it didn't work. In fact, they went ballistic and they seemed empowered by my lack of power. It was a crazy night. And Victor Marks and I remember that night very well. In fact, I'll tell you, we ended up in a car and we were praying after all this happened, going like, what just happened? And our car got rocked. Like, got hit by like a meteor physically. And there was no one around us. And I never forgot that night with Victor Marks. But what I remember most about that night is don't show up like Captain Rambo in Jesus' name, within Jesus' name, unless you know God, because it won't work with pride. It'll only work with humility. And I learned a valuable lesson in the second year of ministry, because the year before that night disappeared. I was like, oh, man, I got like supernatural power, like a Jedi knight or something, you know? And then like, I didn't have any power. And the Lord told me, like, that's not how that works. It's a powerful lesson. So I bring that up because just because you can call down fire from heaven doesn't mean God will call down fire from heaven. But in this case, he did, which confirms to us this was a judgment by God upon these hundred men. That's the only conclusion I can make from this text. They were following the wrong political leaders down the wrong path. Wide and broad is the way that leads to death, and many go thereby. Narrow is the way that leads to life. You're better off hanging out with the hairy man with the big belt that you can never find, Elijah the Tishbite, than hanging out with kings who are debilitated on their deathbed thinking they still run the universe in their little world calling out to the god of Ekron. These guys chose the wrong side and they're greatly affected by it. They lost their lives, the effect on their wives who were widowed, the effect on their children who were orphaned. The details are there. All you have to do is just apply the, the basic numbers and metrics of how many, out of 50 men, how many were married? Of the ones who were married, how many had children? And how far-reaching effect the effect was of their decision to blindly follow this situation. Verse 13. 
Again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up, came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, man of God, please let me live. Let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fires come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s in their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he, Elijah, rose and went down with him to the king. And then he said to him, the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken, because he had no son. Jehoram became king in his place. And in the second year, Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? See, he had a, a short reign, so he didn't build any cities or anything great. He just fell through this thing in his bed and still tried to run things when he's dying on his deathbed as a proud man who's a king that's a short-lived kingdom. Love the mercy in this story, don't you? Where the one captain goes like, hey, this is the law of common sense. Like This is like Rahab hiding the spies. Like This is where... This is where you realize, like, no, there's a right thing to do right here. And this man, so this man, this captain, comes in humility, finds mercy, begs for his life, begs for the life of his 50 men, and in in so doing, he saves his life, maybe his marriage, and he's around for his kids' bar mitzvah or whatever, or his grandkids, and his 50 men that work with him, their lives are spared, and they get to live a rich, full life, possibly, and maybe they're going to seek the Lord more after they see what happened with Elijah the Tishbite in this story. They found mercy, though. See, whenever there's humility at work before the Lord, God will... Well, you can never go wrong with humility. Even when Ahab, after judgment was pronounced on him and he humbled himself, God made it so he didn't see the punishment while he was alive. This captain, who's the captain of the armies of Israel, he recognized the situation and he found mercy and he preserved life. Which is, to me, very interesting because Ahaziah touches things, they die, they die, they die. Nothing's built, there's no legacy. He touches it, it dies. He touches it, it dies. He gives a decree, 50 men die. He gives another decree, another 50 men die. Everything about his life is death because it's sin, death, and baby God of Ekron. But Elijah, what about Elijah? What does he do? He speaks the word three times. It never changed because God's word never changes, right? WG, it never changes. All the shifting sands of society and planet Earth and humanity in 2022, God has never changed. He's not going to change. What was true yesterday is true today, and it will be true tomorrow. The truth never changes. It's absolute. And God's word is absolute truth. If Elijah says this, and then he says that, and then he says, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. He said three times in this chapter, it's the same word. And the last time, it's face-to-face. The gospel is the gospel, and it's the final word on planet Earth and the human experience, and will always be that. And to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father is how anyone in humanity and all humanity is saved to pass from death to life and go to heaven. And those who don't do it in time will do it in eternity as the last thing they do in the presence of God's glory before they're cast out of his glory for all eternity. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is one thing every human soul does, either by choice 
in time with humility or in their own rejection from his presence for all eternity. Everyone created by the Lord will stand before Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. Elijah the prophet has the last word and he's a type of Christ and Christ will have the last word on all the affairs of men in every generation, in every ethnicity, in every time zone. It's a good reminder tonight. That's why I don't get too high or too low with what's going on with the kings of the earth because they come and go. But to be the guy, the hairy man with the leather belt, that's the dude we want to associate with. He's the guy that's got the blessing. And what happens with him in this story? Well, he saves 50 lives. See the contrast? Ahaziah condemns 100 lives. Elijah saves 50 lives. Ahaziah didn't fulfill anything great in his life. Elijah, near the, in the last few moments, the last week or two of his life, speaks the word of God truthfully, faithfully, three times to the king who's trying to bully him and intimidate him and cancel him. And in the end, he even saves the people who the king sent to take him away. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's our legacy. That's who we are when we're gathered here tonight. That's very encouraging. Now we read on in the next chapter. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by the whirlwind. So now we have a contrast. See, we just read a whole chapter about Ahaziah's last few weeks of his life. And now we're going to get the last few weeks of Elijah's life. It's a good contrast. Then Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now, the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, they came out to Elisha and they said to him, do you know that that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And Elisha said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophet who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me onto the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan, that is the Jordan River. Now Elijah took his mantle, his coat, he rolled it up and he struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. All right, so here in this text, this is setting us up for, of course, the famous story of Elijah being caught up in the chariot, and Elisha receiving the mantle of Elijah, and it's just... It's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story with a lot of applications. But this first part, I want to draw your attention to this. Three times, Elisha commits to stay with Elijah no matter where he's going. Which brings up the whole idea of loyalty and faithfulness in friendships, faithfulness in business, faithfulness in ministry, your right-hand man, your right-hand woman, To have friends, one must be friendly. And the whole idea of loyalty. And and it's worth noting because Elisha was called by Elijah into ministry. We read about that back in 1 Kings. And 
God spoke to Elijah when he was hiding in the cave from Jezebel that Elisha would be his successor. And so here's Elijah. He's about to step into eternity, not tasting death. Quite a contrast to Ahaziah on his deathbed in pain. But Elisha is by his side to the very last moment to glean, to learn, to grow, just to be by his side because that's where he knows where he's supposed to be. And there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And of course, we're promised that Jesus is always by our side. You know, Paul, in the end of his life, writing 2 Timothy, he shared with Timothy how no one stood with him. He actually said in the end of his life, he was alone. Which is kind of like, kind of one of our worst fears, is to be alone. But we're never alone with the Lord. And he actually said there in 2 Timothy They all forsook me. Demas, all these guys had all gone their way, but he said, but the Lord stood with me and will always stay with me. So it's something for us to think about that the one that we serve who's over us, Lord Jesus Christ, is always by our side, even to the last breath. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. He's going to always be with us in whatever we're facing in our journey. Whatever our worst fear is, whatever our greatest triumph is, whatever the end looks like, Ahab died in a chariot, bleeding out, looking at a sunset, at the Syrians conquer him, the very people he was supposed to deal with three years prior. His son Ahaziah died on a deathbed indoors, with the prophet looking at him saying, God's got the final say, he always has and he always will. There is an ending for all of us. But it's nice to have loyal friends in that journey till the end. And to have loyal friends, one must be a loyal friend. See, with Pastor Brandon Phillips here at WG, you guys all love him. Like, you're like, where did this guy come from, right? And everyone loves Brandon. But I loved Brandon for five years, like a son. And one of the reasons why I was so comfortable with Brandon coming on staff to be a pastor is two primary, well, more than two, but one is he's a true friend. Two, he's definitely called by the Lord to be a pastor. Three, his house is in order. So those are three big ones when you're looking at people to serve in the ministry. But the craziest thing, like sometimes I'm here with Brandon, we're all doing ministry, Sam and Brandon, we're all here, Anthony, and we're all doing the deacons and all this stuff. And, and I look at Brandon, I'm like, this was my coach with Olympic surfing. Brandon was by my side when I coached the U.S. surf team for two years. And he was by my side in one of the darkest, most challenging times of my life. The loyalty that Brandon showed when I was doing the USA surf team is just something that me and him and the Lord know about. But also interesting, going back to the USA Surf team, was my boss, Greg Cruz, who Brandon knows as well. Greg Cruz was my boss with USA Surfing. And as I got approached by various surf coaches that wanted to work with the USA Surf team, Brandon was one of them. But there were many others. I never felt led by any of those to be an assistant coach, but nonetheless, you have a protocol you have to follow, like, the way U.S. Olympic stuff works. And so I asked Greg, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And, you know, and when Brandon came up with Greg, he's like, absolutely. See, Greg knew that Brandon was going to be a great fit because Greg knew Brandon because Brandon's friend with Greg's adult children. So Greg already knew Brandon. That was the link. But what's cool is before that even happened, Greg and I had been through quite a bit in the first six months of the U.S. surf team, and I've known him for years, but never in a close partnership like the U.S. surf team. He was like the manager. I was like the coach. 
we traveled to France together. We did all these things. And we had some intense moments. We had an all-night thing at Charles de Gaulle Airport from midnight to 6 in the morning that was very intense. We're training rental cars. The end of a trip, we're all exhausted, trying to find food. It was really intense. But our friendship survived that. And over the next two years, when all these people tried to destroy him because he was the boss of Olympic surfing, and people just tried to destroy me because I was the coach of Olympic surfing, we had each other's back. And Greg Cruz was incredibly loyal to me, and I was incredibly loyal to him. And in the midst was my assistant coach, Brandon Phillips, who was also incredibly loyal to me and to, to Greg Cruz. And we can go see Greg at George Hulse's church down there, Shoreline in San Clemente, or Greg can come see us. And, you know, there's a fellowship you have through faith in Jesus Christ, but there's a deeper fellowship you have when the loyalty of your friendship in Christ has been proven by the cruxable of fire, whether it's in a marriage or in a business partnership or in church leadership. It's so hard to find true friends. Peter said, Jesus, I'm your true friend. These guys, if they deny you, I'll never deny you. But what did Peter do? He denied the Lord. It is hard to find true friends. Elisha wasn't going anywhere. He was stuck to the side of Elijah till the last moment. I was talking with Haley before service about my back injury four years ago. And I, when I go back, and many of you remember that, I was in so much excruciating pain. And Jennifer took me here. She took me to Kaiser, took me here, there, that Kaiser, this Kaiser. These, the special chiropractors in Rancho Santa Margarita, these people here, these people there. And I was in so much pain. I was in so much excruciating pain for four weeks. I can't even imagine facing it without my wife carrying me through it. And then, you know, as I'm approaching 35 years of marriage, and I know it doesn't work out for everybody, so don't take it wrong if it didn't work out for you. I understand that. I tell people the older I get, I'm not, I'm not surprised that people get divorced. I'm more surprised they stay married because we're very selfish. I'm very selfish. But to be approaching 35 years of marriage and realize like how loyal my wife has been to me by my side as my helpmate. And as... And it makes, just, makes me want to finish the journey really well and find another gear for her. Because, of course, sometimes you see two elderly people in assisted living together and their husband and a wife, and they've, they've been together 60, 65 years. You're just like, wow. Loyalty is such a powerful attribute in the kingdom of God. To be loyal to the Lord, to be loyal to his people, to be loyal to our calling, and to stand by people's side when no one else stands with them. Those people are so hard to find. Be that person. Be that person that's loyal in Jesus' name because people need true friends. And Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and he will never leave us nor forsake us. You could almost miss it in the story because to get the blessing and the mantle from Elijah, you gotta be standing next to him. What blessings do people miss when they throw their friends under the bus? You know, that's the thing about the cancel culture and the woke mob. They cancel each other. They're so ruthless. They cannibalize themselves. It's hard to watch. Both political parties do it. They cannibalize one another. The church does not, we're not called to cannibalize one another. We're called to build up and be there for one another. And one of the most beautiful things in my life for being a pastor for 34 years is to be with so many people in their darkest moment and be by their side. And you get a chance to represent Jesus as that loyal friend. And the seasons come and go. 
There are so many friendships that are just for a season for you and for me to be that loyal person and represent the Lord to them. And maybe they can't look at you because you remind them when their child died. Your presence will remind them of how you were there for them when their child died or their wife or their husband. But just to be there and hold their hand in that dark valley is so special. And when you're that person and that person moves on and they've got the anointing and the blessings, who's not to say they don't come to you? Who's not to say that when you're that loyal friend? Well, first of all, the universe is sowing and reaping. The two great laws of the universe is gravity, physical, and sowing and reaping, spiritual. So when you show forgiveness, you're just storing up treasures. When you show mercy, you're just storing up treasures. When you sow bountifully, you're just storing up treasures. And when you sow loyalty and friendship, you and I are storing up treasures for all eternity, for time and eternity. You almost missed that Elijah and Elisha, in this critical moment on this critical day, he couldn't shake him. Elijah kept giving him a chance to just bail out. You can bail out. You can bail out. And Elijah's going, there's no way. Almost like, again, Peter with Jesus. Where are we going to go? We have the words of life. We want to be loyal. Loyalty is a great attribute. Because if we represent Christ, he is a true friend. No one likes to get thrown under the bus. Verse 9. And it was so that when they crossed over the Jordan River that Elijah said to Elijah, ask what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? And Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he, Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. (laughs) That's just a fair answer, right? Then it happened as they continued on talking that suddenly the chariot of fire appeared with the horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by the whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle, the coat of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the man of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the God of Elijah? And when he also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. So it was fulfilled. It is an amazing story. Again, I keep saying amazing, but I love 2 Kings. It just starts out like a barn burner. I mean, it's just, let's go. Let's get it going here in this second book of the Kings and the record of the Kings. Two things. First of all, the whirlwind itself. I've shared this story in times past, and I'll share it again tonight. This story, I don't know why, but for maybe the first 10 years as a Christian and a pastor, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the trade of fire. Like, how does a fire, because fire burns you, so how does like a fire not burn you when the trade of fire comes? And, and I was thinking physical. Now, the Gospel of John is Jesus saying spiritual things in physical terms. You must be born again. Nicodemus, do I go back to my mother's womb? No. That was flesh is flesh, that spirit is spirit. Drink from this water, you'll thirst again. Oh, where is this water from? Draw this water for me. The woman with the well is like, I'm the living water. See, this, uh, Jesus, I'm the, your father's ate manna. I'm the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh, they're like, eat your flesh. It's spiritual. It's, it's spiritual. We think physical, temporal, carnal, the Lord's always trying to elevate us with spiritual. But the reality is, when you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you have supernatural events where... Time, space, and matter, which is the science that we know. I mean, Anthony builds rockets, right? There's, you're working on time, space, and matter to build rockets and launch them from Canaveral or Vandenberg. That's a real world, gravity. But the universe is over that, and the eternal is a whole other dimension. 
There's a whole other dimension, the spiritual realm, all of it, the glory to come, the new heaven, new earth. It's a whole other dimension that we're all moving toward. And they merge at times. For sure, like when Jesus joined Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego in the fire, they merged because they weren't burning the fire either. So the only way they're not burning the fire is that the dimension opens up, it supersedes the physical, and is over it. So this story for quite a while, I was like, I don't know, like, how, how does that work? And, I, you know, like, the devil looks for something to kind of chip away at with you in your faith. The devil's like, well, how does that work? They chariot fire, like, how does that work? Well, I don't know, but I believe it. And, uh, but I was doing devotion with Leah, who's now 30, when she was preteen. And we did this study, and I'll never forget, I've done thousands of Bible studies with my kids, literally. And I'll never forget this, I suddenly saw it all. And before they ever had like uh, the Thor movies and all these movies with the Avengers and their superhero portals where they come and go from different things, I saw that before any of that ever came out in movies. The Lord showed me how like a curtain opens up and it's almost like a portal of another dimension and the chariot came and just swept him up and took him right up to the next dimension and the curtain closed. I saw it all, like the whole vision, how it worked. And I'm telling you, that's how it works. When... Melissa Henning Camp stepped into eternity, Jeremy Camp's first wife. And I tell the story often because it must be told. I was in the room here. She was on our deathbed there. Her mom was singing to her, when I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. And Jeremy originally was not in the room. Then she, she got out of her deathbed, all of her cords and everything. She was, all of her vital organs were shutting down. And she's trying to get out of her bed with the rails up. And she's looking to my left, her right, this wall. She's looking right at Jesus right there. Well, Jeremy came in. He was in the lobby with these Bible college students who were praying for his wife. He runs in. What's going on? And they calm her down, and she's there. Her eyes have been closed all night. We've been there all night. It was an all-nighter. And now it's the next day in the afternoon, about 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Then mom starts singing. Jeremy starts singing. She does it again. And this time she gets all the way out of the bed. They couldn't stop her. She flew out of the bed, came out of the bed, and over the rail to my left, and she was going right toward the wall. And Jeremy was right there. And he said, Melissa, Melissa. And she goes, Jeremy, this is exactly what she said. I am healed. Now, she was in a coma for three days. She hadn't talked. She was hooked up, everything. And she looked at her husband, her young husband of five months, and says, I am healed. See, that dimension came. And she was going to Jesus. But I'm like those guys of Saul on the road to Damascus. I kind of hear a noise. I kind of see a light. But I don't hear with the Lord talking to Paul or Saul. I don't see it the same way. It was, not, it was a private party for her. She was the one being caught up in the chariot, not me. I'm still here in time, space, and matter with you on November 8th, 2022. She went into glory. And I saw it. And she confessed it and spoke it. That's why I tell you, words have power. Speak truth and speak faith. She confessed her healing to her husband, the last words she ever spoke to her husband. And she was gone. She was caught up on the trade of fire in the whirlwind, like Elijah the prophet. When she got back in the bed, her body was alive, but she was gone. She'd gone to glory. When Stephen was being pelted with rocks in the book of Acts, what does he say? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. No one else saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father because he was transcending dimensions. The glory had come. When you and I step into eternity, it's for glory with faith in Jesus Christ. We're not like Ahab bleeding out on our chariot like, oh, the day of doom. No, we're going to glory. 
even if we're in excruciating pain, even if it's the worst day of our life because of how it's going down when we're dying, do not fear death. Because right at that moment, we're going to go through trans, uh, transcendent dimensions. It's like, oh, we're going to glory. And I've seen it with my own eyes. God showed me how this worked in this text. And years later, he gave me the dream. I've had at least four dreams absolutely from the Lord. This was one of them. This chariot of fire came from me in a dream. And I actually thought I was in eternity. And I woke up. I was like, Lord, I was like just kidding. <laughs> It was so real. I mean, it was, it, was, it was the glory. And the Lord came for me. And that chariot came, and I did two barrel rolls. Like, you know, like a corkscrew at Six Flags or a body border. I was like, whoa. It was the most incredible feeling I've ever had in my body. And I had it in that dream, and I woke up like, oh. I believe God showed me what the day of the Lord is going to look like for me when I step into eternity. This happened. He went to glory, and that's that. And we're going to step into glory. And maybe he'll send the chariot. Maybe not. But he's, the sun is coming for us. We'll see Jesus. Because he's the good shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He's coming for us. He's coming for his own on the day of the Lord. Man, it's going to be so awesome. What did Paul say to the Philippians? Well, if I live, it's good for you. So WG, if I live, it's good for you. But if I die, it's better for me. Many of you have given up loved ones who've moved on to glory. It would be good for you that they're here and you wouldn't be as lonely or sad or sorrowful with the holiday season coming up. But listen, make no mistake, and I preach the word of the Lord. It is good for them. They're in glory. Because that's what the Holy Spirit says, not me. Which is all we want to hear tonight on this night, right? The voice of the Lord, the voice of the word of God. It went that way. And... Elijah says, ask. Now listen, if the Lord says to you, like, ask, right? Like, the Lord's like, hey, put your name there. Ask. I'd be like, oh, I'm asking. I got a whole list of what I ask for every day, by the way, of what I'm asking for from the Lord. I'm asking for more, more of everything. I'm trying to rack it up in the fourth quarter before the chariot comes from me. When the prophet says, ask, Ask so big. William Carey, the father of modern missions, was the one who said, attempt great things from God, expect great things from God. Hudson Taylor went to China and had a vision for all these people in these inland provinces. There are many of these provinces. There are no missionaries, no gospel witness, and he had the vision of them perishing without Christ, and he dedicated his life to reach them all, and before he stepped into eternity in 1904, 1905, he reached every province and set up a mission station in every province for the inland China mission. Dream big. Ask big. Go big. Get the hustle on. Even if you're 80, get the hustle on. Particularly get it on, because it's not over till it's over. Elijah said, you ask a hard thing. Why? Because there's never been a prophet like Elijah. He is the greatest prophet that's ever walked on planet Earth. And Elijah's intern goes, a little Padawan goes like, hey, can I get a double portion of what you got? (laughs) Dude, double up. Double jeopardy, man. Double it up. Think how profound that is. This is a man with vision. I mean, this is the greatest prophet ever. And his intern says, I'll take a double portion of what you got. You know, on the East Coast, they had the phrase, go for the, the brass ring. 
the old merry-go-rounds on the boardwalks. You, you go for the brass ring. You just go for it. You go for all of it. You go big. When the Lord says, ask, go big, that's what we do. That's how we think. That's how I think, and I know it rubs off on all of you. I hang out with people who go big for Jesus. We, man, when the Lord says, ask, ask. Ask for all of it. Some of the blessings? No, all the blessings. What he asked for was hard because he's asking for more than any human being has ever experienced, a double portion of the prophetic power of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament who stands with Jesus in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going big. He's asking for spiritual power. He's asking for his equipping in ministry. And he's not shy about it. And God answered his prayer and gave it to him. He got such a double portion that when his people touch his dead body, they get raised from the dead later on in this book. It's like the prayer of Jabez. Lord, expand our boundaries, expand our tents. You know, we have that written on that whiteboard in our office that I wrote in the spring of 2000, 2020, COVID, when it all began. The last two years have been the most fruitful years in our receiving and sowing as a ministry in our 20-year existence. When people retracted and felt fearful, we were like, no, let's go. We've done more in two years than 10 years with Jesus in global missions. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. And if you ask for carnal, that doesn't count. If you ask for spiritual, there's the blessings. It's a spiritual request, all the blessings. Oh, I can't wait to teach this on Saturday. Now, we're almost done. So verse 15. So it's all happened. The confirmation, he parts the river. It's, it's on. It's a whole other level in Israel. We just traded. We got an upgrade. Elijah for Elisha. Now, when the sons of the prophets, verse 15, were from Jericho, saw him, they said, Ah, oh, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So they were confirmed. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Here's 50 men again. What is about 50 men in these first two chapters? Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he's like, nah, you're not going to, don't send anybody. You shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men. They searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for they had stayed in Jericho, he said to him, did I not say to you, do not go? <laughs> Some people just got to know for themselves, right? Right? Some people just got to know for themselves. Verse 19. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, well, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from it. There shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remained healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And then he went out from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Get up, you bald head. And so he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youth. Then he went on, went on from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So these back couple of verses are interesting. 
but they just remind us, you can choose blessing or curses, right? Like, if you, if, you, if you love the Lord, you love his word, and the prophet's in town with the double portion, hey, can you fix this well? <laughs> could, you, could you? Like, it's a nice place to live. We just don't have good water. And we all know one thing on planet Earth. Whenever you start a village somewhere or a city or buy land, water, a good source of water is a big deal, right? It's bad water. It'd be a great place to live, except we don't have water, especially in agri-society. But when you're, you have faith and you're hoping the best, you believe in the best, hey, what's he do? A little salt in the name of the Lord. And it, pres- it stayed, right? The little verse says, it's as it is to this day. When we invite the blessings of the Lord and he touches these things and everything he touches, everything we invite him to touch is a blessing. It, bring, it might be salt, but it turns to life. That's what the Lord does. But if we want to curse the Lord and mock the Lord, mock his people, and be skeptics and, and mockers like so many people outside these doors even this night in the United States. They're mockers. They might as well be saying, baldy, baldy, baldy. Listen, it's not a good end for them. It's never a good end for the wicked. They may not get mauled by bears, but you can't fight God and be blessed. There's only a curse. And we close with this verse, that Christ in us is the fragrance of life, to those who are being saved, but he's a fragrance of death to those who are perishing. But either way, when we're walking with Christ, we have the blessing, we bring the blessing, but some people prefer death, but we still are going to bring life. And if they want to pursue death, believe death, baby God of Ekron and do their thing, and they want to curse the bald prophet and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to be a good ending. But no one has to choose that. Ahaziah didn't have to choose that. These 42 youth didn't have to choose this. We choose Christ and life and faith and blessings and a future and a hope in Jesus' name.